City Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City, City Limits. limits. Okay, City Limits, and it's um, it's a fourth Wednesday of the month, if I recall properly. Today we're going to have a time talking to Professor Paddy Moriarty out at Monash, a regular, irregular on this program, and we'll, um, and we'll talk to Paddy about a number of initiatives he's been up to lately in all sorts of areas uh, in research and particularly around climate change, of course. But um, So we'll be talking to Paddy. We might even talk about the state of universities after last week's announcement that if you want to do arts and things where you actually might learn stuff that isn't actually job ready, you're going to have to pay massive amounts of money for it, which is pretty outrageous in my opinion, but uh, we might get Paddy's view on that. What do you think of that, by the way, that decision they took where... Who made that decision? Well, TN announced last week new funding for universities or new but they've drastically reduced the funding for courses that lead to jobs. And he's also saying we should truncate courses so people can graduate faster to get into work. But what they consider to be courses that don't generate, don't have jobs at the end of them as such, like arts and history, etc., they've now increased by three or four times the amount. It's something like $45,000 now to do an arts degree, whereas they've slashed it They've slashed it madly for those that they consider will get into work. And, of course, it, the other problem with that is that capitalism is an unplanned system. So at the moment, there are certain jobs in certain areas where you might be training people, but in three or four years, it might have changed dramatically and people might be training for jobs that when they graduate won't be there anyway. Exactly. It's all those sort of considerations, but they ignore that. Yeah. Well, it's very... It's very subjective what is considered like a good job or not and I think it's always really frustrating that a lot of neoliberal thinking just automatically says that there aren't any jobs in the arts and things like that when there's hundreds of thousands of jobs in the arts in all kinds of areas. We're seeing it now when those when those people aren't able to work and there's so many people in the artistic area who uh, and, and arts just about aren't about art anyway they're about broad education and uh, so it's really about it's the role of universities to educate people, but they're transferring them into one. They've turned, turned them into businesses anyway over recent years, particularly since Howard. Yeah. But secondly, they're also saying what all they exist for is to train people to go into capitalist work. Yeah. Have we mentioned who we are yet? I'm Meg. You're Meg and I'm Kevin. That's right. And I'm going to... Oh, hang on. The two haven't poured tea either. I'll just pour a bit of tea here. Hang on. <laughs> there we go. Right. <laughs> You didn't say who Karina was. Pardon? You didn't say Karina was. Oh, different. Karina, sorry. <laughs> no, sorry, Karina's there as well, yes. Karina always, always tells me she doesn't like speaking on the program, so I sort of just left her out today. Just thought, <laughs> okay, she's out. <laughs> That's all right. I'm just minding my business. I'm knitting a hat in bed. <sighs> oh, good on you. Yeah. Is it in Footscray Western Bulldog colours? No, it's not actually, but my next one will be for sure. Because Karina's a mad bulldog fan and she was most excited on Friday night. <laughs> um, when they, for those who aren't aware, they, they beat Greater Western Sydney, which is even better because beating Greater Western Sydney, every team deserves to do that. <laughs> a couple of headlines this week in the Financial Review that have me really worried. Uh, one was bosses face tough job in convincing office staff to return. And the next day, a front page, idle staff not all keen to return to work. I mean, this is getting frightening, isn't it? The worry is workers may be waking up. Yeah. <laughs> but working for a capitalist boss is not all there is to life. Oh, very concerning. And nothing, even, even you know, the Fin Review are seeing what's happening. That's right. This could be a very dangerous aftermath of uh, an outcome of the virus uh, the item I mentioned last week about the Perth Mint, mm -hmm. which makes all these gold products, I pointed out they were sourcing from a place in New Guinea that has child, or well, number of places that have child labour, but also one where the bloke uh, murdered his murdered his his helicopter mechanic and only did a year in jail, even though he was sentenced to sixteen years and still runs the the show. All sorts of problems, particularly again, also of course with polluting and mercury. 
But then as a result of that, I think I pointed out to you that the accountant said that they took all precautions, etc., but then said there was no way of checking. So that seemed to contradict itself. Mm-hmm. But then a story came out last Thursday. The Perth Mint Board ignored legal advice in late 2017 and chose not to refer some representatives of the refiners of the state's corruption watchdog, according to insiders at the government-owned entity. But then, and some of the, the what they were gone about, they, some of staff members who were concerned referred the matter to Mitter Ellison, one of the big national law firms, mm. and it followed complaints from staff that they were put under extreme pressure to appoint the relative of a person already working at the Mint to a high-paying job in the refiner's marketing department. In addition, the probity concerns related to employment of a family friend of another person already working at the Mint and then this person interfering when the staff member was disciplined for performance issues and safety breaches. In another instant, a representative of the Mint asked that a family member of someone he was seeking to do business with be hired as this would, quote, help his business deal, and it goes on. So that's that's over and above the dealing with New Guinea companies that have a pretty ordinary uh, record. But then in that story, the head of the uh, Mint or the head of the uh, board, etc., in a statement, the Mint said the advice provided was verbal and at no time was any representative advised to report the matter to the local corruption watchdog. So they actually referred it to an internal committee, which I think whitewashed the whole thing. But they said, therefore, there was, it was only verbal and at no time. But then the very next day, that was on Thursday, that story in the Financial Review on Thursday, on Friday, it came out with a follow-up story The chief executive of the Perth Mint, Richard Hayes, said lawyers were gung-ho and in favour of calling in the state's corruption watchdog, according to a secret recording that contradicts a statement he made a day earlier. And in the uh, the secret recording, he he said, this is a bloke, yes, Richard Hayes, in terms of the Public Sector Management Act, we have sought legal advice. The lawyers are gung-ho, yep, call the Crime and Corruption Corruption Commission to to do that. So... In fact, in one day, he's uh, they, they've produced the proof that contradicts what they said the day before, which is hard to believe that you can't believe what business people say, but that's <laughs> how it came across. Well, uh, but it's just an interesting development uh, in that story. Mm. And as I point out, um, the the chairperson of that is an ex-head of Rio Tinto, <laughs> which which brings us, of course, to their little problem. Uh, well, it's not their problem. It's actually the Indigenous people's problem because they've just blown up the place and that's it. Mm. But the bloke called Simon Hawkins, who's the chief executive of the Yamachi Maripa Aboriginal Corporation in Western Australia, he says that the only way to stop this sort of thing happening is a complete change of the law, both the Mining Act and the Aboriginal Heritage Act. And unless they're both changed dramatically, then this this can just keep occurring. And of course, it leaves you the mind to boggle the Aboriginal Heritage Act. It's called, but what's its role then? If it just keeps approving, blowing up all these heritage sites. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah, take that as a rhetorical. And of course, that one. There was also a leak. We mentioned last week. There was a leaked report that Salisbury, the head, the senior Rio Tinto bloke with iron ore. Mm. had said that they were sorry about the brouhaha, that good thing, and the reputational damage to the company, but not for actually doing it. Yeah. But within a day or two of that story breaking, they came out and they apologised absolutely for the whole thing. So they're now, they've now turned to be, sure. yeah, they've become sorry now. Yeah. Well, that's good, just, isn't it? Yeah, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Seeking forgiveness rather than permission. Another headline Tuesday last week, a headline which sort of summed that up pretty well, Rio tries new shot at apology after staff leak. So that took care of that. <laughs> tries new shot at apology. <laughs> Keep trying. Maybe you try and get to the point where you don't have to apologise, perhaps. Yeah, that's right, by not doing it in the first place. Yeah, that would be good. In fact, BHP's currently got a project over there which has had approval for a number of sites to be destroyed as well. And the local people are complaining about it, and they've said they're prepared to sit down and talk about it with the people, mm. presumably before they actually do it. So it's yeah. very good of them. Well, speaking of talking with people, I was reading some news out of, um, I think it was Papua New Guinea. I'm just going to try and find it. So, yeah, something in The Guardian about in Papua New Guinea, um, Kevin, you probably would have seen mm-hmm. this, um, locals from the Sepik River region 
um, chiefs from 28 house tambourans, which are spirit houses representing 78,000 people along Papua New Guinea's remote Sepik River, have declared they want a proposal for the country's largest ever mine halted. Did you hear about this? Pan Australia, an Australian registered miner, ultimately owned by the Chinese state-owned Guangdong Rising Assets Management, has proposed building a mine on the Frida River, a tributary to the Sepik. Yeah, I did. I did see that, but it's good on them. Let's hope they win this one because yeah. the mines up there have caused so much environmental damage all mm. over the place in in Papua New Guinea and in West Papua, of course, where yeah the Indonesians run it. Mm. But you know the the damage. Though, I saw it personally at Bougainville in '69 or post '69 mm. with the Java River on. Bougainville, which I drank out of, it was a beautiful, crystal clear, mm. in you know, in high humidity. Just before that was before the mine opened, of course. And once the mine opened, it just became this viscous sludge. And they're still fighting to have Rio Tinto clean it up. It's it hasn't recovered yet. Yeah. Even though the mine hasn't operated for a number of years, but the river is still stuffed, and it not only you know is it viscous sludge and damage to the river environment per se, but also with subsistence living of people that they depend on it. Yeah. And at sea, it was going out to sea, you know, several hundred metres out to sea, this viscous sludge. Mm. And this is an area where people catch their fish and live off. So it's, it's, yeah, it's incredibly damaging. So good luck to those people. Let's hope they, uh, they have a victory. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Now, I think speaking, this, this is one of the more moral things I've heard in a long, long time. Mm. A bloke called Sam Lubbock, he's, he's described as a former Commonwealth Serum Laboratory chief economist, mm. but he says the, while the world's ripe for a second wave of COVID-19, the cost of Australia's move toward total eradication was vast. And he says the government's approach of flattening the curve appeared to have morphed into elimination, which is the bit he complains about. We, mm-hmm. we want to get rid of it altogether. Dear me. My work suggested that flattening the curb was the right way to go because the economic costs of elimination and the costs per life saved were vast, he said. But it required that we tolerate some deaths and manage infections through extensive testing and flexible, nuanced and highly targeted social distancing. So he's literally saying mm. that we have to tolerate some deaths because of the vast cost of the economy if we don't which I find incredibly moral. Mm, isn't it? Yes. Isn't it? Isn't well, it? Well, it's all about priorities. But I suppose he's actually said directly what governments and others, have, governments and business yeah. uh, are saying in a, in a more circuitous way. Yeah, and saying by their actions. Yeah, we say it every week. What they're really saying is the economy is more important than those who are going to catch it in the second. And Victoria is showing a good example of it. The news today that my suburb here, in fact, we're supposed to, uh, people aren't supposed to come and go in our suburb at all. At the moment, there's a number of suburbs, well, a number of municipalities they've named as being hotspots. Moreland's one of them, there's Darab, and there's quite a number of them. Yeah, right. All in, all except, all mostly in this northwest area of Melbourne, above, yeah. above the city, uh, but there's one down in, um, is it Cardinia, I think, down in okay. the southeast, way down the southeast. But they're saying that people should avoid coming in and out of these suburbs. Yeah, which is interesting. <laughs> Hard to avoid if you live there. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> okay. So uh, I think we we just and we have just got to keep being careful. Of course, that's that's the point. Absolutely, and I think that's part of the thing is that people are, uh, have a bit of corona fatigue. I think, and it was so stressful at the beginning, and people were so careful and yeah, so conscientious, and um, and then since things eased up a little bit, I think people have. Yeah, pretty much that Friday, even before Daniel Andrews made any announcements about what would happen in Victoria, but when Scott Morrison said on the Friday, whenever it was, that they were going to start going through the levels of easing restrictions, that day, you know, I went out and saw just double the amount of people that had been there the day before. So I think everyone just really wanted to to be over. Yeah. Yeah. And there is a problem because people are getting... uh you know, getting fatigued by being locked up inside all the time and uh, yeah. and yeah. Uh, probably going a bit stir-crazy, a lot of people. So yeah. you have to balance that in some way, but I, I don't think you balance it by opening up in a way that's going to allow the yeah. coronavirus to, to spread as it's doing it. I mean, it's still very low figures, re- realistically. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, yeah. 18 or 20 out of millions, but yeah. it's out there, it's happening, and we have to be careful. 
Yeah, and it's interesting, Kevin, what you say about um, mental health. And I mean, you didn't use the term mental health, but looking after people and who are feeling isolated and things from being indoors because um, Mm. I think it's interesting that there's now, I mean, we're a show that talks about planning and how cities are built and what that means for community and things like that. And just interesting to look at the effects of this on the way that people relate to their local environment since people haven't been able to drive long distances or take holidays far away. And, you know, on the one hand, people are probably might be feeling more isolated, but also for a period there, everyone was just walking in their local neighbourhood and a lot of people talked about how they met their neighbours who they'd never met before and made connections with people who lived nearby distantly, you know. But just interesting to see, you know, how that changes the way people might think about their communities too. Mm. Yeah. People getting to know each other. What a tragedy. That's over and above <laughs> getting sick of going to work. <laughs> exactly. Serious. It's surreal. It's <laughs> really what they're afraid of. This is, this is the end of capitalism. If people <laughs> like each other, work together, don't want to ha- work for a boss and um, <laughs> stay in their communities. Another area where the government has, was to be pre, pre and during and post, I suspect, this one of Corona, but the big four accounting firms of the world that so control the world's economy, Deloitte, Ernst & Young, KPMG and PwC, PricewaterhouseCooper, yeah. they've been getting incredible amounts of government, well, we know they have been, getting incredible amounts of government contracts mm-hmm. for jobs that used to be done by public servants, but the government's cut back. Yeah. And in fact, the annual value of work done by the big four has more than doubled since the coalition has returned to government under Tony Abbott amid enforced staffing caps and as the firms expanded the types of services they perform. And Mm. Julian Hill, a a Labor federal member here in in Melbourne, says it shows the firms are doing a growing amount of work traditionally handled by the public service with departments and agencies forced to hire contractors and consultants because of the government's public service caps. This is privatisation of Australia's public service by stealth and it has to stop. The COVID-19 lockdown has triggered a deep nationwide reflection on big issues, including rebuilding national capability and the over-casualisation of work across the society, and he's calling for an inquiry. But Mm. the Australian Public Service had a review by David Fody, a former chief executive of Telstra, so he's no great friend of, of the public sector. But he says the use of external contractors and consultants to deliver work previously done in house was a key in the decline in capability of the public service. Mm. And he noted that data keeping on the use of consultants and contractors was often inadequate, adding the, the Australian public service should make sure it brings in the best external capability. At an earlier inquiry looking into the government's use of consultants, contractors and labour heard there was no effective tracking uh, mechanism for the work. Mm. But you'll be pleased to hear that our finance minister, Matthias Cormann, said outsourcing was an efficient way to keep down government administration costs. Wow. Yes, yes. So that's good, isn't it? Contractors are so expensive. Contract, like getting people into, it's, this This is a really interesting, they'll pay this one company, I don't know, you know, thousands of dollars more than they would pay for someone to just have a job. And yet their whole line is always about jobs. This really weirds me out. Like they're always like, oh, it's all about the jobs, jobs and economy and everything. And and yet, like all that stuff that, that they do is like stop is is just paying <laughs> paying more money to have less people have jobs, basically. That's right. Get rid of them. Yeah. But and of course, those particular big four companies would charge absolute premiums. Exactly. Yeah. For doing stuff, all presumably. Well, what they pay? Well, especially when you get someone to just drop into an organisation or something. Like this happens in community services a lot. Um, because of funding pressures and the squeeze on social services and community services, then you have like someone just drop in for like six weeks or two months or six months and then they're in and they have all this lead up time, might be weeks or months that they have to like understand the program, understand the organisation, understand the role and then they do their job and then they have all this time that they have to spend, you know, for a succession plan to get themselves back out of the organisation, it's so inefficient and you pay you pay more than you would pay just to employ someone to, to do that job for a year or something, you know. That's right. And then it's always been a problem, of course, that with social areas where people, where people are operating on grants, you 
spend half your time trying to make sure you keep the, getting the next grant exactly. rather than doing the work the grant's there for. It's, you raised that point a couple of weeks ago with someone, actually, and it was, it's a good point. Yeah. It's always gone on. Mm. But it's, uh, yeah, there needs to be much more permanent consideration of those things and, the, and in-house employment, of course, by the body that actually runs the show. Yes. Or is doing what the work is, yeah. Yeah. As long as it's decent work, of course. We are getting. We're we're up to about twenty minutes. We um we have Patty on the line. Right. Are you ready to get into this? Um, yes, I'm ready to get into this. We'll take a quick break. So on city limits, we'll take a quick break. Come back, and we're going to talk after this to Patty Moriarty out at Monash about lots of things Patty's been up to. Okay. 3CR is your station in solidarity and struggle. We've been with you since 1976 and we are here to stay. Throughout June, we're running a station appeal. We need the financial support of our listeners to stay independent, community-owned and radical. Jump online and give what you can. Go to 3cr.org.au. They're pulling on the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moorabbin. Fascism's on the march and we say, yeah, nah. Yena Passaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Aotearoa and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm, we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters. Hi, it's Ronnie Kareni here from the Voice of West Papua program. I joined the Tricia Community Radio back in late 2009 as a volunteer, a programmer, and also a staff member. And I must say that Tricia Community Radio is the only community station that has been able to bring the voices from diverse community backgrounds and various campaign groups and for those people to be able to tell their own stories. And that is unique. You can't find that in any other stations or in mainstream media. For me, as a West Papuan, to be able to tell my own story and to give an update, that is special. It's important to support Tricia Community Radio this time when everything is in uncertainty. Much love to our Tricia Community Radio staff and volunteers for their tireless work in keeping this station going. Thank you. Tricia, your station in struggle and solidarity. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au. All right, we're back on City Limits and you're on 3CR Community Radio. Um, City Limits is a podcastable program, so have a look for us on your podcast app. And you can also go to 3cr.org.au slash City Limits. Our next guest is Patty Moriarty, and we will actually put some links up. So anyone who's listening who wants to read some of his work will be able to find them and we'll give you more details later in the show. Thanks for joining us, Patty. Thank you. Okay, and Paddy, you've been doing some work on airlines. I had some information here they, where they're getting lots and lots of government money at the moment to keep these companies going, and yet there could be an argument. I know you've made an argument over the years that, in fact, we should be trying to cut back on our use of aircraft rather than keep bolstering them up until they can get back to normal again. Well, yeah. I mean, um, one of the ways in which, uh, well, not only this plague, but others have spread is through um, increased air travel. And... Uh, you know, I think that needs to be uh, questioned a bit. Even before this um, present pandemic, a lot of, um, well, especially climate scientists, were very aware of the fact that they were going to international conferences and using a lot of carbon dioxide, right? So even before the coronavirus, there was a move to have virtual uh, conferences. And of course, this, this has been enforced during the, uh, during the lockdown. As I say, air travel is even if it does pick up in the second half of this year, is is projected to be uh, less than half last year. And they don't think it'll really pick up in um, 2021 either, as long as there are some countries that aren't on top of the uh, of the coronavirus, um, air travel is likely to be um, dampened for some time to come. It's interesting, Paddy, what you say. 
It's interesting what you say about having virtual conferences and things like that and and also just so many people working using this technology that we have. We've always had this technology, but we've never had the pressure there to have to actually make use of it that way. Urgency, yep. Yeah, well, people have always worked from home. I mean, <laughs> there was even um, manufacturing jobs done at home, you know, piecemeal work and so on. The uh, 18th century uh, uh, gig economy, I suppose you'd call it. Mm. And um, as far as online shopping is concerned, uh, as long as you had a, 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 a post office box and a CS catalogue in America, the pe- that's the way people bought things, right? Yeah. So, and with the telephone and, um, you know, there's always been correspondence courses around, but uh, certainly the new technology has made it easier. The very few people were working at home before this. Mm. And now there's been a lot of um, tele-education and telework. It's a matter of whether it'll get, whether how much of this will remain. A lot of people have learned to use the new technology and a lot of businesses and educational organizations, including Monash here, have sort of learned more about how to use it and um, how to make the most of it. Mm. But it wasn't introduced because of the need to cut down energy or uh, carbon dioxide, right? It was introduced because because the economy collapsed and people and, and social distancing and, um, and people couldn't travel by air and so on. So it'll be very interesting to see for transport, for energy overall, how much of a rebound occurs uh, as the if and when the economy picks up, whether in fact it will ever return to normal or not. Yes. I mean, I think this has given the human race a scare that, you know, that the markets and, and, and technology can't solve everything. I think that's what will be a permanent feature. And the, and the virologists are saying, prepare for the next uh, epidemic, right? Right. Learn from this one. Well, we quoted earlier in the program, Paddy, just in a general discussion, a couple of headlines in the past week or so in the Financial Review that said that workers are reluctant to go back and uh, their bosses are getting worried that workers won't want to go back to the office. So maybe, as we say, workers are starting to wake up that there's more to life than just going to the office and they can do other things anyway. Yeah, those who work in... That's- um, Assembly land uh, and so on, um, or Bit more uh, cleaning of jobs. Uh, it's pretty hard to do that from home. <laughs> yeah, and they're so, they're out there in in the in the front of it all, of course. There. Yeah, yeah, and a lot of um, a, a lot of well, you know, there was a move which I hated, when I've never approved of this um, move to open plan offices. Well, that does seem like a very bad idea now, right? So I think we'll see a move back to more privacy, which would be a very good thing. Um, mm. Yes, and in this program, we've often advocated public transport. I mean, that's that's taken a bit of a beating as well over the last few months, right? Uh, walking and cycling are still good options, but um, public transport. I mean, I take it in the morning. I take it for one stop from Malvern to Caulfield, and I can choose which half of the tram to get on because there's generally only one or two people on the uh, train because it's going out of the city and it's very early in the morning. Whereas if I come from Murrumbina, there's probably 60 or 100 on the train and I'm, and I'm just not prepared to use it. I walk. Mm. You better explain that, Paddy, for people a bit confused. Your partner yeah. lives in Melbourne. You live in Murrumbina, so sometimes yeah. you're at one or the other. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that, that's right. Yeah. yeah. So but the, the Dandenong line is much more patronised than the other one. Also, I'm going towards the city if I, I'm at Murrumbina, right? And even early in the morning, uh, the train used to be full, but now they're still full enough, right? Uh, does anyone know what what Parliament Station at 5.30 looks like these days? Has anyone been there? 5.30 in the morning? No, I haven't. Been. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, oh, no, oh, no. Oh, <laughs> uh, 5.30 at night. Oh, in the afternoon? Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, I have not been there, no. Have you? Yeah, I'm just wondering. No, yeah. no, no. They're, they're saying, though, that, um, that that has to be to practice proper distancing. They're allowing four square metres per person. And therefore, anything above 15% of pre-corona patronage would not allow them to do that. And it's getting up to 18 or 20 or something at the moment, apparently, on yeah. trains. So uh, that's, that's where it's at. But it's distancing on public transport is, is going to become a major problem, particularly as people start to go back to work, of course. Well, well this raises some interesting questions compared with... Um, let, let's take two, two problems. Um, climate change or as as it's increasingly referred to by the scientists, the fear of catastrophic climate change and the coronavirus. With the coronavirus, what any country did, um, or what any city did, or and so on, just benefited, it meant it was good for overall, but it benefited them, right? So in other words, lockdown in Victoria benefited Victorians, right? With 
uh, with climate change, this doesn't work this way. Even if Australia reduced its emissions to zero, it wouldn't make much difference internationally, right? In other words, there's the real scope for freeloading. Oh, they're doing it. We won't have to worry. That doesn't work with the coronavirus, right? The fact that we're in lockdown is not going to help people in New York. So that's the big difference. There is, in fact, um, one similarity, though, and that is, and this, all these like me and Kevin, um, Megan, will, will you drop out of this conversation for the time being? Uh, <laughs> is, that, is that there is a difference between, well, males and females, because males are about three times lo- more likely to get uh, ill or die of the coronavirus in females, but especially the elderly, right? Mm. So um, the the problem is that the young um, realistically don't have much of a chance of getting seriously ill, and uh, the elderly do. So there is that's a parallel with climate change, right? Um, that there is that division between those who run the risk and and those who don't. And of course, it's the young who are going to the long term risk for. The long-term risk on climate change is for the younger people who are going to have to live with it. Yeah, yeah. Um, if you have a look at, if you have a look at the, as you know, on the slopes of Wainaloa in in uh, Hawaii, they actually measure the carbon dioxide of the atmosphere each day. This is just in the northern hemisphere. It's a, it's on a mountain slope, so it's a long way from any industrial source, right? Obviously, if you set up measuring next to a power station, you're going to get a very high carbon dioxide reading. Carbon dioxide is a pretty well mixed gas although the Northern Hemisphere is slightly higher than the Southern Hemisphere, but basically this is an index of what's happening overall. And they measure it each day, and it goes, it cycles. In other words, it cycles throughout the year, and in the Northern Spring, which is occurring now, um, or the Northern Spring and Summer, what you get is the carbon dioxide content of the atmosphere decreases because a lot of it gets fixed in plants, right? And you might say, well, why doesn't that happen in the Southern Hemisphere in the other half of the year? The point is that most of the land mass and most of the forests are in the northern hemisphere, so it's actually mainly a um, it's mainly a northern hemisphere thing. And what you find is that it cycles up and down, but on an, an increasing scale. And despite the the reductions in in um, energy use in fossil fuel energy use, it's still going up. In other words, it it, it hasn't um, the trend hasn't changed. Mm. And what this means is, I think, is that um, probably probably deforestation is um, Probably in in increasing um, because of lax. Um, I mean, you know, because there's less um, surveillance and so on. And of course, Brazil. Um, the president. There are some leadership issues in Brazil, the same as in America. Um, I'll, I'll just call on that and leave it at that, right? Yeah. With the well, we've now raised that question with the Amazon, for instance, and what Bolsonaro is doing to that, or and his predecessors, for that matter. Uh, you just talking to me the other day about your theory about rainfall and uh, in those sort of forests and how it really recycles, but by taking down the trees, you interfere with that process. Could you explain that one to us? Yeah, so this is fairly well established now that um, because of the huge leaf area, even compared with the land area they're on, forest uh, trees act as, as hydraulic pumps, right? And evapotranspiration occurs from the leaves, it has to occur because this is the way that minerals and so on are drawn up from the ground into the uh, plant itself. And so this huge evapotranspiration, in in fact, I've seen it in um, when I was in Africa, Um, the water falls and then you see by the side of the road, the water starts rising again. It doesn't stay for long. Um, So what happens is that this just moves and uh, condenses and falls a few hundred hundred kilometres further down. and so, um, you know, the, in, the, in effect, the rainfall gets re- recycled. One model suggested that if the, as you take down, they're looking at it from a hydroelectric point of view, if you just deforest a little, then this actually helps uh, stream flow and hydro uh, because it stops the trees from, from uh, evaporating, right? So there's more going into the uh, streams and so on. But once you get past about 40% loss of the forest, you start to get a uh, loss in rainfall overall and in stream flow and therefore in mm. hydropower generated. So, and it's, well, it's, that's been a problem that's been talked about for a long time. I mean, they talk about the Amazon being the, the lungs of the planet or something, don't they? And uh, so the more you damage that, the more you're going to damage the, uh, presumably you're going to damage the impact of climate change and, and weather conditions worldwide, I would imagine. Yeah, and the, actually with forests, there's a recent paper, just I think it was published last week in Science, talking about you know, there's um, a lot of talk about using 
carbon dioxide removal, right, and uh, biological carbon dioxide removal, plant more trees, either reforestation, that is in areas that have been forested, replanting them, or afforestation in areas that weren't forested. Now, the problem is that how secure is that storage um, of carbon in trees and in, um, and in soils and so on? Now, there's several things. One is obviously de- deforestation that's occurring, um, especially illegal logging in the Amazon now, which has increased. Uh, the second is pests, especially borers and so on. Um, in fact, in, um, in the temperate, uh, in the coniferous forests of Canada, that's been a huge problem. Another one is drought, which can kill trees. And of course, um, there's also, as we know in Australia, um, forest fires. If that increases in intensity and so on, you can have a permanent loss of um, carbon. So all these, and if so, if we get in fact increased climate change, we could see that this is um, not a good way to um, th- that this is not a permanent storage. It's probably a good idea, but I'm just saying we shouldn't rely upon it um, as um, as a, as a panacea for um, solving climate change. Yeah, and a lot of companies, of course, are talking about getting back to or going zero by whatever year they decide to do it. But a lot of it is by that sort of thing, by offsetting. So they effectively, they continue to do what they're doing and believe they're zero because they offset it in a, with a tree in Indonesia or something. Yeah, um, and this is a trouble with the red scheme, R-E-double-D, um, as they call it, uh, that you've got to make sure that, that, that let, let's say they put in a um, hydro station, a um, hydro plant or something, that they weren't planning to ever do it anyway, Right. So, I mean, you can't blame them. If they, can, if they can get money for building a hydro station, then why not do it, right? Mm. But it doesn't necessarily, uh, it doesn't necessarily, um, I mean, it, it doesn't add to the uh, reduction in, in carbon. And um, a lot of schemes for replanting, if they were planning to do them anyhow, then it doesn't, um, then there's no net benefit. Um, but of course, the trouble is that overall, uh, didn't, uh, overall, deforestation is still occurring. In other words, because of carbon dioxide fertilisation, there is an increase in forest um, growth in a number of places, right? In other words, uh, intact forests, whether in the tropics or in the, uh, especially in northern or boreal forests, uh, are still growing. But this is counteracted, more than counteracted, by uh, deforestation so that there is a net increase in carbon dioxide from our forests each year. Patty, is there a um, correlation between deforestation, like long term, over the you know since industrialization and the um, rise in carbon dioxide in the atmosphere? Oh yes, it's been. Um, I can't remember the exact figures, but since the industrial era, era there's been um, several hundred uh, billion tons of carbon dioxide have been re- released from um, land use change, as they call it. Right. Um, uh, you know, forest clearing and and conversion to agriculture and so on. Mm. Yeah, so that has been a factor. Um, most emissions now are from f- fossil fuels. Is the, if you're looking at carbon dioxide, most of the carbon dioxide emissions today are from are from uh, fossil fuels, right. rather than r- rather than deforestation. I forget I forget the exact figure. I think about seventy five percent comes from from fossil fuels. I'm not sure, or maybe even higher. Mm, okay. But um, but but before that sort of really ramped up, I imagine, yeah, deforestation was. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, in, 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 if you take eighteen hundred, the year eighteen hundred, I think there's only 10, mm. 10 million tons of uh, coal burnt. You know, yeah. Now we now we talk about billions of tons, right? Right. So it was tiny. Um, and in in fact, uh, one one scientist, there's there's one theory that says that the global cooling was averted by the clearing of China's forests. To plant rice thousands and thousands of years ago, you know. Wow. Wow. <laughs> so, um, so the human actions have have been influencing climate for many many thousands of years. Mm. So then the temperature didn't rise, so to speak. Um, yeah. Another another dreadful joke. Um, Paddy, you also told me that you've been working on a um, on a book that sells for a mere two thousand dollars. That's um, yeah. you're, you're exactly. writing part of it. All four volumes. Yeah. That's right, yeah. uh, but uh, you were doing you were doing some stuff there on climate, and I think on algae, weren't you? Could you explain that to us as well? Yeah, well, that's another book. But um, yeah, as I say, uh, because of the uh, because of the downturn in air travel, there won't be too many people picking this up at the airports to read on 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 board, right? 
which is a shame. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, this is another one on, on um, this is another book, um, and I'm writing a chapter on algae. This, this is, um, you know, the green slime you get on ponds? Mm. Uh, this is microalgae. There's also a huge algae, which is kelp, you know, the kelp forests and so on. Mm. And one, uh, a lot of people want to use this um, microalgae, this slime. They want to grow it in open, what they call raceway ponds. Um, and they want to grow it and harvest it. The thing is, it grows very fast and you, you can harvest it every few days. Whereas with, say, a, um, let's say for timber, or for, uh, for structural timber, a mature forest, you may harvest every 20 years or so, right? So you can see that it's very attractive if, if, if you can harvest every few days. The problems are um, several. Uh, one is that the act of harvesting, because it's um, mainly water, the act of harvesting and drying takes a lot of energy. Um, Secondly, the, there's, uh, if, if they're open ponds, the chance of contamination by other strains, which are not the strains of algae, which are not the ones you want, is high. And um, overall, it seems to have a very poor return on energy invested. That's what we look at, right? In other words, work out how much energy you put into growing the stuff and harvesting it and so on, and then see how much you actually get out. And if you don't get as much out as you put in, that's not much use, right? <laughs> because it's an energy thing. And um, in fact, some people say you need a factor of three and so on for it to be vile and so on. And it doesn't appear to have this. It's mainly one of its reasons why people advocate it is because by selecting the right strains, you, you, can, actually, um, you can actually grow plants that will give you a lot of oil. Um, well, equivalent to diesel oil, right? Which you can use directly like you know, you, you've heard of using um, uh, what they call it, um, sunflower seeds um, for oil, right? For, for diesel or biodiesel, right? You don't really have to refine yeah. it. So that's one. Um, that's one, uh, one. One of its uh, advantages. And of course, if you if you're growing uh, terrestrial plant, plant matter, it's mainly uh, woody. And um, in fact, and that's why they they grow things like uh, sugar and wheat, where you can convert, or corn, where you can convert a high percentage into um, uh, biofuels. But one of the troubles is that a number of countries now are talking about getting rid of um, diesel fuel and also internal combustion engines in general. Now, a very few of them have legislated this, but a lot of them have indicated the desire about both cities and countries to phase out the internal combustion engine by, by 2030 or, or 2040. And if that's done, of course, then... Um, any sort of fuel, whether it's petrol or um, biodiesel, or you know, or from algae, is then is then quite irrelevant. Mm. As you know, um, well, even before the coronavirus, even in 2019, there'd been a sharp downturn in world car sales. In 2020, it it has become uh, become catastrophic, of course. But electric cars before this crisis were selling pretty well. In fact, um, China, even electric. Well, in China, they've got about 30 or 40 million electric bicycles and electric buses. Some cities have replaced their entire bus service with electric buses. This is mainly for air pollution reasons. Um, and in fact, I think China has several hundred thousand electric buses. And um, electric cars were selling extremely well. I mean, China was the main buyer, but as far as percentage of new cars, Norway, I think, was leading the world at about 30% of new car sales there were electric. Of course, um, Norway's electricity is mainly from hydro, so it, it can be seen as as uh, green. Uh, although they have plenty of oil as well. But um, so the point is that if in fact uh, internal combustion engines are banned, then the only alternatives, if you're going to keep vehicles, is either uh, electric vehicles or or hydrogen powered vehicles. Mm. Yeah, and of course Australia, you've quoted world figures, but in Australia we're way behind in terms of electric take up of electric vehicles and and government supporting them in any way. Well, well, in fact, if you if you're um, if you're burning brown coal to to produce your electricity, that's probably not a bad thing, right? <laughs> <laughs> probably less polluting. Touche. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> oh, I actually worked it out. I, I think I worked that out thirty years ago. I did the calculation, and I think I found that it wasn't any any use. Yeah, uh. yeah it wouldn't help. You know, in fact, I think I repeated them two years ago and found that it wouldn't help in Victoria. Um, and obviously Victoria gets some power from the hydro uh, in both you know, the, the snowy mountains and also a, a bit from, from Tasmania now, as well as I think we've got a link with South Australia and New South Wales and so on. So it might have changed a little bit, but um, basically 
if you're if you're burning coal, there's not much use in in converting to electric vehicles. Mm. You will clean up, clean up the cities a bit because it does mean uh, less pollution at the point of use, mm. which is important mm. in a lot of cities. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, that's interestingly enough. Um, uh, um, there was a story in in the Herald Sun just on Monday this week, which is actually when we were recording this, of course. But um, it's about the fires last summer and the impact on on the energy grid. And it says on December twenty, when the temperatures hit forty three and a half C in Melbourne, equipment at the top of some wind turbines failed, and power generation dropped by a massive eight hundred megawatts in the afternoon, causing major supply issues. So, they're saying that on it got so hot that in fact was what they're obviously saying that wind turbines failed. Is is that um, I suppose that sure. is possible? I, I, is it? Well, wind turbines do do fail. Um, I, I'm not sure. I mean, one if you have a look on if you go on the internet, you can see some spectacular pictures of turbine failures. Sometimes the engine or the uh, the, the rotor catches fire, and, um, and that can be very spectacular. Uh, sometimes uh, wind turbines are made to shut down or to feather. If the if the winds get too too high, right above about twenty meters per second, the um, the turbine shut down. Otherwise, the forces on the uh, on the blades and so on will, will affect the structure, and the whole thing could fail. So um, there is that problem in in very cold areas where you have sleet and ice. You have to divert some of the electricity you you've generated to heating the blades. To make sure to, to to get rid of that ice, because otherwise you can get an imbalance in the blades, and that's going to lead to failure as well, right? So, um, and they do have to replace. I mean, these blades are huge. Um, the the um, blades can can be a hundred meters across, right? They're huge, and they have to replace them every ten years. Somebody's got to go up there and um, with a crane and um, and replace these. Actually, they're made of fiberglass, and actually have um, sort of people you with mountain climbing equipment going up there, putting patches on and so on. Mm. Right? Not the sort of job I'm looking for, but <laughs> <laughs> to each his own. Yeah, they they are massive. So, and, uh, yeah, yeah, those wind those wind turbines. Oh yeah. Well, well, if uh, well, the higher up you can have the hub, um, two things. One, you get better wind speeds, and secondly. Uh, if you have them too close to ground, quite apart from shaving people's heads off, which is not mm. they're much higher than that. But the but um, it turns out that the wind profile it's it's zero at ground level and increases. So what you can get is differential stresses on the blades. So you you, you try to have them the blades you know um, the lower point maybe thirty meters from the ground so that you can get a more uniform wind mm. uh, profile across the blades, right? Um. We've got about 10 minutes left and just for people listening, uh, you're listening to City Limits on 3CR and our guest is Patrick Moriarty uh, talking about all things energy. Did you have anything else, Kevin, for the next? Well, Paddy, Paddy referred earlier to um, carbon capture and storage mm. and there is a strong lobby at the moment pushing for uh, both hydrogen and, and carbon capture and storage. It's arguing... And this is an interesting argument. They they argue that one we should be using hydrogen a lot more, but secondly, it's much cheaper to produce it with fossil fuel with carbon capture and storage than to use renewables to generate the hydrogen. Um, your thoughts on that, Patty? Yep, I've actually written on that um, for the International Journal of Hydrogen and Energy. I think I wrote a paper last year. I write so many these days, but. Um, yeah, look, uh, carbon capture and storage has been talked about. I've been reading papers on this for 30 years, right? So it's not a new idea. Nobody is doing it, right? But it's um, it's one of those things that's used to, in other words, to sort of justify uh, burning fossil fuels, right? If you have a look, the first first international uh, intergovernmental panel on climate change report was released 30 years ago. In that time, we have done precisely nothing, right? And this is one of the reasons why they hold out a carrot of uh, carbon capture and storage. There are several problems with it. It's pretty energy intensive, even if you um, even if you collect the uh, the carbon dioxide uh, in the exhaust stack of a uh, of a power station. Um, the carbon dioxide content of the atmosphere is about uh, 0.04%. Right, that's um, 400. And, it's about 417 parts per million. When I was at school, it was 350. Just shows how old I am. <laughs> and 
So, uh, so, uh, but in so we should stop talking about old men, Patty. You're worrying me a lot. Yeah, but go on. I know, I know, I know. Uh, but you're older than I am, a few months. Anyhow, um, so, so it it is cheaper to collect it in an exhaust state, like at at the power station itself. But it would still take twenty five or thirty percent of the energy from the power station of the output would be needed to to even collect the carbon dioxide and to. Uh, compress it and liquid or liquefied for, for, for transport to the um, burial site. You've got to bury it about um, a kilometre down or so as well. And you'd ha- you have to have hundreds of thousands of these um, underground burial, you know, you'd have to drill hundreds of thousands of burial tubes to, to release it. And of course, there, there would be failures, right? I mean, any, any um, pipe, there are blowouts, right? So you'd, you'd have to expect a, a bit of that. Um, and you'd have to find suitable uh, sites for it. Now, a lot of people don't want them next to it. I mean, you'd, you'd have to bury tens of tens of billions of tonnes of carbon dioxide each year if you were serious about it, right? Which means that you'd really, you, you'd have sort of, um, and this would be under pressure. So you'd have sort of under pressure under the ground. A lot of people don't want that. <laughs> would feel a bit nervous about that. Uh, well, there was a potential catastrophe there, isn't there? I mean, if it, when it, we, even when it did suddenly explode and come out, you'd have a major catastrophe, I assume. Not quite that bad, but um, as you know... Well, in Lake environmentally, Lake, surely. Yeah, in, in Lake Nias in um, Cameroon, in West Africa, there was a carbon dioxide explosion. The lake, it was building up under the lake and it suddenly came out and um, killed a few thousand people and their, and their cattle and any animals around, right? Because carbon dioxide just hung a, around and um, people asphyxiated. That sounds pretty bad. Yeah, um, so you wouldn't want that to happen. Um, now, another interesting thing is that you, uh, in an, as you know, in America, in the, um, uh, in, in the sedimentary basins, they're doing a lot of fracking, right? Uh, in other words, you know, drilling to extract um, tight gas and oil. And one paper pointed out that if you have, you've got to realise how many holes have been drilled in America for oil or gas, right? We're talking hundreds of thousands. And the problem is you'd have to you'd have to seal them all. If you're trying to put, because these sedimentary basins are also where you want to bury your carbon dioxide, you better make sure that when you finish with that oil or gas field that there are no spare holes for the stuff to come out of, right? Mm. So this is a problem as well. Um, that the and this is where they're looking would be in sedimentary basins and especially disused oil and gas fields. But there is that problem. Also, they found and this is, applies to. Um, enhanced geothermal systems as well that if you and also uh, putting in um, a waste pollution into the ground right you drill a hole a kilometer and then you force it down under pressure this can cause micro seismics. in other words mini earthquakes right and that can have two effects one the locals don't don't like it if their um, chinaware jumps off the shelves but secondly it can for carbon dioxide burial to work, you have to make sure that the what they call the the cap rock, the seal that stops it getting into, say the the uh, aquifers and therefore into the water, because carbon dioxide reacts with with the minerals in the earth and causes them to be uh, activated. And these can be heavy metals and so on. And you don't want these getting into the um, into the aquifers that, that that supply water. So what can happen is that if you force carbon dioxide under pressure into the ground, it can, in fact, cause microseismes, which can cause the, the cap rock to fail and therefore the carbon dioxide to come out. Mm. So you have to worry about, about that as well. The thing is that nobody's doing it at present. There's 10 million tonnes, 10 million tonnes of carbon dioxide uh, are sequestered each year and they're not done for, for uh, climate change reasons. In Norway, they do it offshore and it's from a gas field. The point is, and the reason they do it is because Gas, natural gas has to have certain limits on carbon dioxide to sell it to markets, right? In other words, you can't have too much carbon dioxide, otherwise its calorific value falls. So they have to get this carbon dioxide gas out anyhow, and they're bearing it underground, but only a few million tonnes each year. And as I say, we need a few billion tonnes each year. And the other use for carbon dioxide is to actually extract extra oil and gas from declining fields. And this is done in America. So in other words carbon dioxide burial is used to extract more more of fossil fuels. You can see the irony in that, I think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's being talked about, Patty, but it's like 
not actually doesn't sound actually feasible no one's going no one's going to do it it's good to talk about because it it sort of suggests some hope right but nobody's going to do it yeah well the chevron development on on barrow island off western australia where they're destroying a, a pristine ecological area but they 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 pushed this as one of the great selling points that they were going to they were going to bury the carbon dioxide at the time we talked on this program many years ago to a geologist um Jilly Llewellyn who said that the the geology of the island was quite porous and there was no way they could keep the the carbon dioxide down there without it escaping obviously and it does seem they've had major problems on Barrow Island with that that proposal yeah well well it, it, with this um with carbon dioxide burial you have to you, you can't necessarily just put it down where the where your power station is. You have to select your site well, right? Which means that you have to transport it. Which means you have to build um, pipelines for the carbon dioxide and so on, right? Or else bury it at sea in the aquifers under the in the salt aquifers, saltwater aquifers under the sea, as Norway is doing, right? But you have to get it there. So um, in this case, you would have to um, pipe it or take it by sea some some somewhere else, which adds the cost, of course. Mm. We're pretty much out of time, Paddy, but I wanted to ask you one question. In relation to the the uh, destruction of sacred sites in Western Australia and Rio blowing up 46,000 years of history, uh, in, in courses for engineers, because there's so many engineers on mining sites, uh, are there, is there any part of the course that talks about the ethics of this sort of thing, or is it just go out and I'm do it? I'm not sure. I haven't taught engineering for many years, but... Um Civil engineering, I think the courses have changed. It's now called environmental engineering at Melbourne Uni, right, where I went through. And I think that, that there is much more awareness now, obviously, by the change in name of the course, right? Um, yeah, I think there is more awareness of that. You see, you've got to realise that what people's politics are depends upon where they work. In other words, engineers who work for mining companies tend, tend to be pretty conservative, right? Uh, a, a, social, a social scientist who work for mining companies also tend to be pretty conservative. Those who work at university tend to be pretty liberal, right, or, you know, left. So, um, and of course, as sociologists, but the point is that there are a lot more engineers than than the sociologists employed by mining companies, right? Mm. So there is that mm. split, you know. Um, so at universities, yes, there would be more uh, environmentally awareness taught these days. Mm. Well, let's hope it reflects in the future then, yeah. yeah. How are we going now, on time, team? Yeah, we're, we're at the end of the show. Yeah, well, one thing I want to say, I've just got myself, um, uh, what do you call it, um, I'm banking online. Um, I don't know anything about this, but my partner does. So, uh, And I've looked up the 3CR Radiothon site, and um, I'm planning to put some money into that, right? So this is going to be my very first foray into online banking. Uh, <laughs> I love it. Well, well Paddy, because I was going to conclude by asking you just to give a plug to 3CR anyway, because we are at, you know, the, this month is the fundraiser, so um, you've virtually done it, but just just tell us how important 3CR is, Paddy. You know how important it is. Yes, yes. Well, I think um, giving alternative points of view, especially in this, in this age, right, there's so much, um, I think 3CR on this show is good for reflecting upon where we really want to go. And uh, that sort of direction is urgently needed at this point in uh, in history, I think. Yeah. All right. And look, next time we get you on, because I know you talk about transitioning to a future energy situation, and we may talk more about that next time we get you on. We didn't get to yep, it. I'm writing about that. I'm writing about that today, as you rang me. <laughs> well. <laughs> yeah. All you. right. Thanks, Patty. Thanks bye, a lot. Bye, bye Meg. Thank you, Patty. Great to have you on the show. Um, and we did say that we'd like put some links to some of Paddy's um, writings if anyone's interested in digging in deeper to some of the things that we talked about today. And as Paddy mentioned, it is, um, you know, usually this month is our Radiothon um, fundraiser, but because of coronavirus, we're doing things a little bit differently. And so, look, if Paddy can get his online banking organised and get online and go to 3cr.org.au and donate, then anyone can, right, Kevin? I think it sounds that way to me. Or it does sound like Bernadette's the key to it, but um, which is his partner. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but nonetheless, yes, he can do it now. It's wonderful. <laughs> you don't need an engineering degree to um, to donate to 3CR. Well, it sounds like it might. <laughs> sounds like it might be a barrier in Patty's case. <laughs> well, 
<laughs> Good on him. Thank you, Patty. Yeah. Yeah, okay. And um, all right, and next week, of course, it's transport. It's the first Wednesday of the month, so we'll... Um, We'll have John McPherson in the studio, our monthly commentator on transport issues. Yes, we will. So we'll see everybody then. We won't have him in the studio. We'll have him, yeah. we'll have him on the <laughs> line. I keep saying in the studio we, as I sit at my, my home desk. But anyway, uh, we'll, have him, we'll have him online next week. Okay. And a big thank you to Karina for editing, recording and organising everything that makes this possible for us to do this remotely. Thank you, Karina. Yes, and congratulations to her team for knocking off the Greater Western Sydney non-giants. <laughs> You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.